We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles, if you would. Let's jump into Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we've been walking through this chapter over the past couple of weeks, and there's kind of been a theme that I want to show you that you've seen maybe through this. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to show you this morning, but there's kind of this repetitiveness of this theme that you've seen throughout this um, chapter, and it's simply this. There's three parts to it. It's this. It's hear the word. It's do the word. It's teach the word. That this is kind of the overarching idea that Moses has here as he's talking to these people as they're preparing to go into the promised land. They're preparing to go into a land that is filled with a culture that is opposite of what God desires for his people. And he says, listen, the first thing, you need to hear the word of God, hear the commands of God, hear what God has for you, and then you need to do them. It's not just hearing, it's doing. This is what we find in the New Testament. The book of James says, don't be hearers of the word, but be what? Be doers of the word. And so he says, hear and do. So listen to me. When it comes to growing in Christ, we've got to understand that we, not, we are not just to hear what God's word is, but then we are to, to do what God's word says. That it's receiving God's word and then responding in obedience to God's word. Many of us are great at hearing and ignoring, right? Or, or knowing something but not practicing something. But what God wants for us is hear and then do. And as we hear and we do, then we are able then to teach, instruct, pour into the next generation. And this is the heartbeat behind this entire series is that we would hear God's word, do God's word, and then teach. As we model it, we would then teach it, pour into the hearts of the next generation. And what's going to happen is as we do this, as we hear the word, as we do the word, as we teach the word, it's going to create a question in the hearts of our kids and our grandkids. How many of you ever have your kids ask questions and you just get annoyed by the questions from your kids or grandkids? Anybody here? Uh, so like if you're taking a journey, whether it's long or short, when you leave the house and you're heading there, what is the question that annoys you more than any other question? What is the question? Say it with me. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The other day we were taking a trip. We were going to a ball game about three and a half hours away. We did not get to Pittsburgh, Texas before the question was being asked is, are we there yet? And I'm just like, no, we're not there yet. And then the third time I'm like, don't ask the question again. We'll be there when we get there. And I'll tell you we're here. All right. So don't ask that question anymore. Any parents ever lose it like that? Uh, hey, listen, this is supposed to be a safe place for me and you're not joining in. All right. Um, but the question of all questions that our kids ask, our grandkids ask, it's a massive question, it's a simple question. It has three letters. What's the question? Why? Why? See, some of the parents in here are like, yeah, that's the question all the time. Why? 
And what Moses is going to show us this morning is that this is the question, that as we hear, as we do, and as we teach, the question of why is going to be developed in the heart of our kids. Look what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, and when your son or your daughters or your children, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? This is a simple question. The question is, the summary of it is, why? So as you hear and as you do and as you teach, your kids are going to come. And what Moses is saying is, they're going to ask you in time to come, why do we do this? Why do we follow the commands? Why do you always talk about the commands of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord? Why is it that, we, that our life is built around this system of belief? Why is it that we do the things that we do? And Moses is saying, listen, in time to come, as you hear, as you do, as you teach, this question is going to be asked. Now, Moses does this in a very positive way. I love this because he says, and when your children in time to come ask this question. In other words, Moses is giving the parents the benefit of the doubt. He's like, I'm assuming that there is going to be something so distinct in your life that there is going to be a way in which you operate as a family that you're going to hear, that you're going to do, and you're going to teach. And as you do this, the natural question from your kids is going to be why. So Moses is saying, listen, if you live that, like this, this question is going to be asked, and I'm assuming that you're going to live like this. Hey, here's a question for you moms and dads, grandma and grandpa in the room today. You ready for it? Here's a question about the question, all right? This question of why, here's the question you should be asking. Is there enough distinction between my family and those unbelieving families around me that would create this type of question in the heart of my child? In other words, is my, do my kids see me hearing, doing, and teaching? Is there a rhythm to my life that would cause my kids to say, wait a second, our family looks different. We have different type of conversations. We have different set of values. There's a different rhythm that we have from my other friends who don't go to church, who don't know Christ. And it's for them to be able to say to mom and dad, why, why do we do this? So you need to ask yourself the question, is there enough distinction between your family and the families of unbelievers around you that would create this type of question in the heart of your child? And this is a scary question to be asking, is it not? But it's one we need to examine. We need to ask ourselves the question, how do we look? Do we look different? Is there a distinction about us? So as those rhythms develop in our life and this question is asked, Moses is going to show us how we answer the question. Listen to what he says. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, then you shall say to your son. So when the question is asked, this is your response. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all, that is, uh, all the, this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now I want you to think about his answer. Think about his answer. Think about the fullness of what Moses says here. So Moses says, listen, when you get asked this question, why? Why the commands? Why the statutes? Why do we do what we do? Why do you hear and do and teach? He says, this is your answer. You tell him because God said so. Is that what you see here? No. Does he tell them? No, no, because if you don't, we don't. God will strike us dead. Is that his answer? 
Does he say, well, this is because, we're, it's because we are good Hebrew family, and this is what good Hebrew families do? Is that the answer? No. What is the answer? He says, when you get asked this question, when your son or your daughter, your child says, why do we do this? What, what, is, what is the deal with the commands? Why do we live this way? I want you to look your kids in the eyes, and I want you to tell them we were slaves in Egypt. And by the grace of God, with his outstretched hand, with his power, he delivered us. He provided for us a sacrificial lamb so that we might escape the slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. And not only that, he's given us a land. He is going to be our God. We're going to be his people. And he's giving us a land. And in this land, he has given us these commandments. And these commandments are for our good, that he wants to bless us and give us life. And it's going to lead us to a place of righteousness. I love this. He says to them, I want you to point them to the goodness of God, the redemption that is ours in him, the relationship we now have with him, and that his commands are meant to give us life. Listen, parents, we, we must establish homes where we rightly see why we do as the people of God what we do. There needs to be what I would call a gospel-centeredness to our parenting. A gospel-centeredness, which means that when we are parenting, it's not just about commands and rules and duty and responsibility and all those things. It's about the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God that has given us life, that has caused us to be who we are, and in response to who He is, we do what we do. Are you with me? Say amen. This is the great call for us, that there needs to be a gospel-centeredness. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a couple of statements, because the question is, how do we do this? What does this look like practically for us if we're going to raise this next generation with a gospel-centeredness in our parenting? Let me give you a couple of things to write down. Here's the first thing. We, we need to point them continually to the gospel. If we're going to do this, we need to point them continually to the gospel. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Listen to this. And he brought us out of here. He says, here's what you tell them. You tell them about the redemption that is ours because of God's grace and his goodness. He says, you tell them the story. I love this. He says, when you're asked the question, what's the deal with the commands? He says, listen, you tell them the story of the gospel of God's deliverance. You tell them about the good news that we were slaves in Egypt and we were in bondage and we could not escape. We could not get out of this. We were held captive and we cried out to the Lord and in the Lord and his grace and his mercy, he sent a deliverer named Moses and Moses came and he came and he, 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 he did wonders and signs among us to show us that God was with him and Pharaoh, his heart was hardened, but then there was his final sign where God told us that his judgment was coming and it's going to judge the sin of Egypt and we are sinners just like the rest of the Egyptians. So what God did was amazing in his grace and mercy. Here's what he told us to do. He said, I want you to go to your house and take a spotless lamb and his judgment is coming and he's going to strike dead the firstborn. And so I want you to sacrifice this lamb and take the blood of the lamb. And I want you to put it over the doorpost of your home. And then I want you to go in and consume the sacrifice so that when my judgment comes to judge the sin of Egypt, you will be covered by the blood of the lamb and my judgment will pass over you. And God came and he passed over us. And the next day he delivered us because he provided a sacrifice for us. This is what I want you to tell them. 
What does that story remind you of? It is the gospel of Christ. See, the Exodus, we know a real event is a foreshadowing of an even greater event. And that greater event is this, is that you and I, we are slaves to sin. We are captive by the the enemy. And there's nothing we could do to rescue ourselves from the enslavement to sin. But God, in his grace and mercy, has sent a greater Moses, a greater deliverer on the scene. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus, being perfect, sacrifices his own life so that as his blood covers us, the judgment of God that we deserve passes over us. And in that, we are delivered from, we are set free from the bondage and slavery to the sin that held us. And so what we do as moms and dads, as grandparents, as those who are imparting our faith to the next generation, there needs to be a continual telling of the gospel story into the hearts and the lives of our kids of the great answer as to why we do what we do. It is because of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. This is the answer we give. I love what Tim Keller says about this. Tim Keller, he makes the observation about this story. He says in verse 20, when the kids ask the question, Moses' answer doesn't go to verse 24 where he's going to tell them because God commanded us. His answer goes to verse 21, which is the story of God's redemption. And here is the point that Keller is making. He says this, before the law was nailed to the doorpost of the home, the blood of the lamb covered the doorpost of the home. And just in the story of redemption of the Exodus, what comes first, law or redemption? Redemption. He says, you remind them. You don't start with the law as to why the law. You start with the grace of God. You start with the gospel. Moms and dads, this is where we must start in regards to raising our kids. Yes, we teach law. Yes, we strive to obey the commandments of God. But we do so in light of the gospel. We do so in light of the goodness of God who gave us the law, and we long now because of what he's done for us to obey him. You see, the gospel, parents, listen to me, the gospel is not just the means by which your kids are saved and you are saved, but it is the means by which they are sanctified in Christ and learn what it looks like to walk in obedience. See, so many of us, here's what we do. We, we, we try to get to the point where we go, okay, my kids prayed a prayer. They received Christ as their Savior. We baptized them. And man, now I just got to help them stop behaving badly. And so now from the gospel, it's law, 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 law. No, 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 no. The gospel life is I respond by faith to what Jesus has done. And now I walk in obedience because of the ongoing effect of the redemption that he has given me. You see, you've heard me say this before. Listen, you don't graduate beyond the gospel. You you, you grow deeper into your understanding of the gospel. And if we are not continually reminding our kids of the goodness of God and the redemption that is ours in Christ, what we're going to end up doing is pointing them to how the law is meant to modify their behavior rather than having their hearts transformed by the goodness of who God is. And this is important for us. He doesn't answer the question about the law with the law. What does he do? He tells the gospel story. And parents, can I help you with this? This is not just about you regurgitating that Jesus died and he resurrected. This is weaving his story, your story, your kid's story into their maturity in Christ. Here's what I mean by that. In in your discipleship 
resource that we gave you at the beginning of this series, one of the things we're asking you to do this week is we are asking you to sit down with your family, grandkids, kids, and tell your gospel story. Tell them how Jesus has transformed your life. There, there are many of you in this room and your kids have never heard. They know you're saved. They know you're a follower of Jesus, but they, they never have known about how and when and what that looked like for you. And so one of the things that we're challenging you to do is sit down at the dinner table sometime this week and just tell your testimony, tell your story. Let them get a glimpse into why you are the way that you are and why it is that you're striving to be the parent and to follow Jesus. You need to tell them because I was this and then Jesus intersected my life and he transformed me and he made me new and now I still fail. But man, Jesus has wrecked my heart in a good way and he's transforming me. There needs to be an awareness in your family of how Jesus has intersected your life. So that when they get curious as to why it is that dad and mom make these things a priority, they know the reason. They don't see it as, well, this is what Christian families do. They say, mom and dad have been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, my kids need to know that their daddy at the age of 16 was running from Jesus. That I was miserable and my, my life had, had, had no purpose whatsoever. And I was trying the things of this world to find some sort of meaning. But God in his grace and mercy chased me down even when I wasn't looking for him. And he, through the death of my best friend, brought me to a realization that I needed something in my life that I wasn't getting in this world. And God leveled me and I humbled myself and I confessed my sin. And Jesus saved me and he put me on a new course of my life. And I am who I am because of what Jesus has done in me. My kids need that. Your kids, your grandkids need to hear your story. My challenge for you this week is for you to tell them your story. Maybe you got some friends and you're like, man, I don't have kids yet. That's great. So do you have friends that may not know Christ that you're trying to minister to? What if, rather than you just trying to find a way to preach the gospel to them, what if you were able to roll out your story for them so they can see how the gospel has transformed your life? Listen, we've got to tell the story. We want to raise a generation who is centered on the gospel. We've got to continually point them to the gospel. Here's number two. Number two, show them that it's not about being delivered from sin, but being brought into relationship. This is the second way we are gospel-centered in our parenting. We show our kids that it's not about being delivered from sin, but being brought into relationship. Look what he says in verse 23. And he brought us out from there. Now listen, I could stop there and get fired up. And here's what he says. And he brought us out from there. Listen, do you realize today that if you are in Christ, he has brought you out from there. I am thankful. I can look back at my life and where I was before Jesus, and I can look back and say, I am so glad he brought me out from there. Anybody thankful that God has brought you out from there? Listen, this is something we should never get over. He brought us out from there. You say, wait a second, I was saved at six years old. There was not a lot of hard living in my life at that age. Listen, what about what you could have been and where you could have ended up had he not intervened there? He brought you out from there. And that is great news, but it's not as great as what he says next. And he brought us out from there, that, circle that, that's purpose, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And he brought us out. See, that doesn't tell the full story. 
He brought us out as a good thing, and I'm grateful for it, and we can cheer and applaud. But more than that, he brought us out to bring us in. For so many of us in our Christian life, we only focus on the fact that he brought us out, and we fail to realize that he brought us out to bring us in, into relationship. And this is the point he's making. He brought us out from there, Egypt, to bring us in relationship, fellowship with him, to give us a land where we might rest in him, he as our God, we as his people. You see, for so many of us, the focus of our faith is on what we were brought out from. And we miss out on the joy of what we've been brought into. And if your parenting is only focusing on what you're trying to get your kids from and not aiming toward what they get in Christ, the relationship, then what you're going to have is kids that feel like they're being robbed, that there's things in this world that they get experienced, but you're trying to bring them out. And when you fail to realize what it is they're brought in to, they miss the point of the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is not what you've been brought from It's what you've been brought to. And this is the point that he's making here. That he brought you out to bring you in relationship. And when we fail to focus on this, when we only look at what we've left behind, we never experience the fullness of life that God has for us. How many of you know this is true? We have a tendency, when we only look back at what he's brought us from, we have a tendency to romanticize the past. Anybody? We have a tendency to romanticize the past. Here's what I mean. It's that we are thankful that he brought us out. Man, God redeemed us. He stepped in and he brought us out. And in the time, we're thankful because we know the circumstances. We see the situation of life. And we're like, man, he brought me out. But if we're not careful, if we only look at what he brought us out from rather than enjoying what he's brought us to, eventually what will happen is the further we get away from the experiences of what he's brought us from and life in him at times is difficult, what we'll do is we'll look back at the past and with the revisionist history... And we'll forget about the pain and the sorrow, and we'll just say, man, I just wish I could hang with those people again. Man, we used to have a really good time. Man, this is really hard following Jesus. Man, I look back and go, man, it seemed like life was just so much easier back then. And we look back and we forget the pain and the heartache and the sorrow because we're looking backwards, and eventually what happens is is that once the pain goes away, circumstances get tough, and we just long to go back to where we were. Now, isn't this the story of Israel? Read the Exodus. I mean, read the Exodus. They, they don't even get to the Red Sea when we parts the water. And they're like, man, we're going to die out here. God, we just want to go back to Egypt. And they begin to, to, to have a revisionist history and romanticize the past. There's even segments, and I've showed you this a few months back, that there's segments in the story of the Exodus where they're, they're sitting here, they're going, man, we got to eat manna again. This is terrible. Back in Egypt we had, and they kind of talked about the nasty food they were eating there as if it was really good. And no doubt, just a, you know, maybe a decade ago, they're going, I hate this stuff. I wish we had manna in the wilderness. And now they get manna in the wilderness, and they look back and go, man, I just wish I could have that potted meat that was boiling. It was, that, that was really good. <laughs> Do you see what's happening here? We, we look back at the life we were brought from as if it was better than the life we're in now. We parent this way. Our kids don't experience the new life that is theirs in Christ 
and begin to look at their friends and those around them going, man, I am missing out. What we need to help our students get and understand and grow in, it is this reality. What I find in Christ is greater than what he brought me from in the world. We've got to help them see that what I have in Christ is greater. You see, the aim of the Christian life, don't miss this. The aim of the Christian life is not just you stopping the sinning that's going on, but rather about you savoring the one who redeemed you. It is the joy of the Lord. It is in fellowship with him. This is the aim of the Christian life, that we might know God and walk with him and experience the abundant life that we find in him. It's not just about behavior modification. He brought us from to bring us in. And we get this in relationships, right? Just think about marriage. Think about marriage. So, like, I do a lot of weddings, and a couple will stand at the edge, and they, they, they will look at one another, and there's going to be an exchange, right? And that exchange is really, if I could summarize it, it would be I am being brought from, and I'm being taken to. What do you mean? So they'll say something like this. I'm willing to forsake how many others? Say it. Say it again. I'm willing to forsake all others. That's a big statement. They're in a room full of people. Many of them they love. Some of them they dated. <laughs> I'm going to forsake everybody. I'm going to forsake all. Like, there's nobody in here. You alone. Like, I am all of them, no more, just you. That's a lot, right? And not only that, I'm forsaking my right to a bathroom all to myself forever. I'm forsaking my ability to go to dinner when I want, with whom I want, whenever I want. I'm forsaking a lot. What if you went to a wedding and that was the exchange? You'd be like, objection, please. I, this is not going to, right? But that's not what you see. What you see is tears streaming. I gladly forsake all others and give up the bathroom all to myself and the freedom of all these things. Why? Because of the relationship they are being brought into. You see, they don't begrudgingly say, I'm being brought out of. No, no, no. That's not the focus. Yes, I'm, I'm being brought out of. But more than that, I'm being brought into. And because of what I'm being brought into, it is worth walking away because it's far greater than everything I'm being brought out from. And listen, this should be the declaration of our lives in Christ. It's about what we're experiencing in him, not what we're missing in the world. So here's, here's number three. This, this all kind of works together. If we're going to raise kids who are gospel-centered, here's the third thing we should do. We need to teach them that God's commandments or God's commands are meant to enhance our joy, not restrict our joy. This is massive here. Teach them that God's commands are meant to enhance our joy, not to restrict our joy. Look what he says here in verse 24. He says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. So Moses says to them, Yes, 
God commanded these commands. God commanded these statutes. And he expects us to do them in the fear of the Lord. So he says, yes, there are commands. And yes, you should obey them. But then he tells them why these commands are given. Don't miss this. For, this is a purpose again, for our good when? Always. So yes, he commanded us. Yes, he told us to obey these things. Yes, he says to fear the Lord. Why? For our good, always, that he might preserve us how? Preserve us how? Alive. As we are this day. Think about what Moses is saying here. Why the commandments? Why the statutes? Why the principles? Because he redeemed us. He delivered us. He did for us what we could not do. And he has brought us into relationship with him. And not only that, he gave us these commandments because our God is a good God that gives good gifts. And he is showing us through the commandments how life works best for us so that when we live in them, we experience his goodness and it gives us life. We need to help The next generation, and by the way, our generation, whatever generation you're in, we've got to help ourselves and the next generation rethink how we see the commands of God. For many of us, the commandments of God are grievous and they're burdensome. And we feel like, man, that guy's got all these rules. And man, Christians can't do anything. And, but when we understand what Moses is communicating here, listen, God says, I have good for you. Like, I have a life that I want you to live. And so these commandments, I'm giving them to you because I know how life works best. You're broken. You're bent towards sin. In other words, you're going to live contrary. And therefore, the commands are meant to realign you with experiencing life according to my design, which is the best life you can experience. This is a good thing God is doing. And and listen, by the way, the way we see the commandments are a far cry from what we see in the Scriptures. I could have done a dozen of these. I'm not going to. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Psalm 19. Listen to what the psalmist says about the law of the Lord, the commandments of God. He says, the law of the Lord is what? What's the word? It's perfect. And what does it do to the soul? It's reviving the soul. The testimonies of the commands of God, the statutes of the Lord, uh, is sure, you can count on them, making wise the simple Let's just think about this. He says, listen, the law of the Lord, it's perfect. It doesn't need any perfection. It doesn't need any improvement because it revives the soul. The testimonies of the Lord, I can count on his word every single time. And by the way, when I'm simple, let's use the word ignorant, man, it can make me wise. Later on in verse number 10, he says this. He says, the law is more to be desired than gold. Even much fine gold, and it's sweeter. What's sweeter? The law of the Lord is sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Man, isn't that different than the way that we view the commands of God? It's not meant to restrict our joy, but to enhance our joy. And this is why the psalmist says, listen, it satisfies the soul. It's more precious than gold. And it, 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 it gets into the heart of who I am and helps me to live in a way that's wise according to God's plan. Other places in the psalm, it says that the, 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 the commandments of God, the law of the Lord, is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. How many of you have ever been in situations in life where you just need to be able to see what's next? 
He says, the law of the Lord is that lamp that I need for my feet. It guides me. It's a light that helps me see where I'm going. In Psalm 1, the psalmist says this. He says, the one who meditates on the law of the Lord, they're like a tree that's planted by streams of water. Why is that significant? Because when the sun is beating down and the trout arrive, it is located near a source of nourishment so that in the midst of the drought, it still produces fruit. You see, we've got to understand that God has given us the commands for our good. Not to restrict us from joy, but to enhance our joy. Let me illustrate it like this. A couple of illustrations. How many of you have ever driven on a one-way street? Raise your hand if you've driven on a one-way street. Raise your hand if it's you. Okay. How many of you have ever driven, this is where we've got to be honest, authentic biblical community. How many of you have ever driven the wrong way on a one-way street? What's been amazing is, it's, is all morning long, there have been more hands raised on that than on, you've driven on a street. <laughs> Just remind me never to get on the road with you. Just remind me of that. This is, so if you think about a one-way road, you're going to see a sign. It's going to say what? One way. And it's going to have an arrow. It's going to make it very simple for you. So for those of you who've driven the wrong way, lawbreakers, so... <laughs> So there's this one way, you, none of us will look at that and go, I'm so frustrated right now, I don't know why in the world they've got to give me these commands. Like one way, are you serious? I want to go the other way. No, no, you're not going to look at that. You're going to go, man, I'm so glad that they commanded me this because otherwise I would have been going the wrong way and it could have been disaster for everybody. But because someone was kind enough, they gave me the commandment to go one way and one way only. And I know if I don't do that, it's going to end badly, Right? So think about this. Have you ever been to a place and you've seen a sign? There's some equipment and there's, you see a sign and it says, do not touch. And then underneath it, it's in yellow or bright orange, high voltage. Anybody ever seen one of those signs? Yeah, you've seen them. When you see those, does it bring about rage in your heart? Well, you're like, how dare they? Like, who do you think you are? I, I want to grab it. And you've given me this commandment. I'm so frustrated right now. I have the freedom to touch what I want, when I want. But then your commandments get in the way. And now you're telling me that I can't do this. I'm so frustrated. No, no, no. You don't do that because if you grab it, it's like lights out, right? Really lights out. No, no, no. You're going to go, who put this here? Thank you so much. I've got kids playing here. And now we know this is dangerous. We know to stay away from this. You would never look at that and be angry like someone is trying to take joy from you. Now, you would see that and go, man, I'm glad they put that sign there because it could have been disastrous had we grabbed it without the sign. The commandments of God are given to us not to take joy, but to give joy, to protect us, to put us on the path that God wants. Let me just kind of use it in this type of context illustration. Think about the subject of sex. This is a way I mean, to apply what I'm talking about in a practical way. We talk to our kids about sex. The church that I grew up in here was to talk about sex. Don't do it. Sex is bad. Stay away from it. Anybody grew up in that church? Yeah, some of you. Some of you are like, I still can't raise my hand about sex in church. I don't even think I can get there. You're scarred. So we, we, we hear that, and yet there's all these desires you have as a kid growing up. And you're like, man, they're telling me, no, it's bad. And yet there's these desires that I have. What if, rather than pointing to the commands in a way that's negative, what if we taught our kids that sex is a gift that God has given for the enjoyment? But because he loves us, 
He has put restrictions and he's given a context for us. So he's, he commands us to live in abstinence until we are married because in the context of marriage, we get the gift that God has given us the way that God has, what, in the way that which God has given it for and we experience it to the fullness so that when we see this issue of sex and wrestle with our own desires, we are not looking at it as in God trying to take something from me, but rather preserving a gift so that I can experience it in the best way possible. Illustration that I've used before is this. Is, let me ask you this question. Is a, is a fire, is fire good or bad? Answer the question. Both. Depends on the context, right? So fire can be terrible, but it can be a great thing. So in our, our living room, we have a fireplace. That fireplace can bring warmth to the room. It can light the room. It can be a special moment when we're you know, in there at Christmas time. We gather around the fire. It can be a very big blessing to our family. But if you take the fire out of the fireplace and you put it in the middle of the living room, what happens then? Now that gift that could be enjoyed destroys the home. So the fireplace is the law. We are restricting fire. It's got to stay there. But if we pull it out of there, it becomes harmful. What if when we talked about subjects with our kids, we helped them see the scripture from the bigger picture of life? Hey, listen, sex is a gift God has given, but God's made a fireplace for it. And his law has put it there because he wants us to experience the blessing that it is rather than our lives being burnt down by it out of its context. Do you see how reframing this might help our students understand that God is the giver of good gifts and that he puts laws in our life not to restrict us, but to enhance the joy that he has for us, which leads me to number four, and this is where we land the plane. Number four, if we're going to be gospel-centered as parents, we need to remind our kids that our righteousness isn't found in what we do, but in what Jesus has done. That our righteousness is not found in what we do, but in what Jesus has done. Look what he says in verse 25. I love this. He says, and it, the law, will be righteousness for you or for us. If we are careful to do, what's the next word? All these, this commandment, every bit of it, before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now, he tells us that this commandment, this obedience to the commandments is meant for your righteousness. In doing these things, you are made righteous. Now, let me give you two things about this. One, he's telling the truth. Righteousness is, is available through complete obedience to the commands of God. So it is true, but it is impossible. It is impossible. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. So he says to them, listen, if you keep all of these commandments, it will be righteousness for you. But we know it's impossible. How do we know it's impossible? Moses, at the end of his sermon, Moses is, is preaching one massive sermon here. At the end of his sermon in chapter 31, so he's telling him to obey the law, hear the law, obey the law, teach the law, all these things. Then he gets to the end of his sermon, landing the plane of his, his message there right before they go in the promised land, and this is what he says. I love this. He says, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Take the law. I want you to put it by the ark of the Lord, and this law is going to be a testimony against you. Now, that's scary. Now, why is this a testimony against us? Verse 27, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Now, doesn't it sound like a parent talk? Like, you can't even obey when I'm here. How in the world can I trust you with the babysitters, right? 
He's like, you're rebellious people. You're not going to keep the law. Look what he says in verse 28. He said, assemble to me all the elders of the tribe and the officers that I may speak these words in the ears in their ears, and call heaven and earth to witness against them. So now he's going to witness against them to heaven and earth. And this is why. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Selah. Right? Here's the point. Think about this. This is the worst ending to any sermon in history of ever. Think about this. It's the coach that are in the pregame talk. We got everybody together. Hey, guys, listen, we got a game plan. What we're going to do is we're going to go and run this and run this. We're going to shut this player down. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be an upset of the century. All right, ready, break. And then right before they walk out, oh, by the way, boys, the medical team will be here in the locker room because you're about to get wiped off the field. (laughs) Is that not the talk he just gave? Do these things. You can't do it. (laughs) It'll be righteousness for you. Sorry. Why? He tells us in chapter 29, I'm not going to read it. He tells us why. He says, because you don't have hearts to to desire to do them. You don't have eyes to see and you don't have ears to hear. You're spiritually dead. So you do these commandments, it means righteousness for you, but you're not going to do them. So what do we do? God sends a greater Moses. God sends a Moses named Jesus. He's a greater deliverer. See, Moses could give a law, but the people couldn't live it. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm going to be the one who does the law for you. This righteousness that you need, that you can't achieve on your own by obeying the law yourself, I'm going to step in, I'm going to live it out, I'm going to obey perfectly the commands of God so that it's through my righteousness that you can be made righteous. So what does Jesus do? He lives the perfect life, he dies in our place, he resurrects, so that when we trust in Christ, we are trusting in the one who obeyed the law completely so that in him, the righteousness that is his now has been given to us so that through his obedience to the law and not our obedience to the law, we have the righteousness we need to be in fellowship and relationship with the God that created us. Is that good news for anybody? You know what this means for us? This is what it means. You tell your kids, you raise your kids, here's what you do. Notice the book in. You continually point them to the gospel. You tell the story of what Jesus has done. You remind them of the graciousness. And then you show them this is for a relationship. And in this relationship, there's these commands so that you can enjoy the life of the relationship. And when you fall, because you will, I want you to remember this. Your righteousness is not dependent upon your obedience to the law, but on the obedience of Jesus to the law. It is not about what you do. It is about what Jesus has done. Now think about how this would transform our parenting. If this began, began to be the framework that we parent from, we obey. Because Jesus has redeemed us and we are in relationship and his ways are better than the ways of the world and that now we know that no matter what we do, we are his because of what he has done. Listen, your kids are going to mess up. They're going to fail. They're going to struggle. They're going to sin. They're going to fall. But what is going to be the basis of their hope? It's got to be a foundation that goes far beyond being good rule followers. It's got to flow from a life that is submitted to Jesus, understanding that he is their righteousness. What would it look like if this began to be the framework that we raise the next generation in? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would. We're just going to pray. 
And I'm asking you to wrestle with these four statements. What does this look like in your home? What does this look like in regards to your grandkids? And let's commit that God, we're, we're going to ask God to rearrange our lives so that we might walk in these truths. Father, I love you and I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would lead us and guide us as parents and grandparents and those who are next generation influencers to continually point to the gospel and to the relationship we've been delivered to would savor the law because it gives us joy and we would rest in the righteousness that is ours in Christ. I pray that for my kids, for every kid that's a part of this church, and for the hundreds that we will reach in the days ahead. God, we lay ourselves before you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And God's people enthusiastically said, amen. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today, or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903 759 5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.